Amen. Before we open the word this evening, just uh, two things I'd like us to review our memory verses for the month of October. We could get those up. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Thank you very much. We'll say this together, then I'd like us to pray together. Can we say Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Very good. Thank you. As we pray, I want to give thanks uh, for Marsha Pierce's surgery. Maybe you heard about that this morning. That went well, her hip replacement surgery Friday, already feeling much better. And then yesterday, little Trinity Ficey had an emergency appendectomy, and we're so thankful she's better, she's well, and uh, she's at home. So with that, let's go to the throne of grace one more time and ask for God's help. Our God, you are, as the song says, our joy and righteousness. Our Father, we pray that now as we hear the word that for every heart, every person in this room, that you would move each of us to look upon him whom you've pierced for our transgressions, and that we might be humbled, we might be convicted, we might find hope, that we might run with faith and with the spirit of repentance to turn from all that we want, all that we crave, all the idols of our heart, and to turn to you and find that of all we once held dear, they are but rubbish, and you are our treasure. And we, cra- we pray that as we think about missions now, that we would think as those whom Paul said that we, it was for the sin that Christ died and rose again, that he'd be Lord both of the dead and the living. And so we pray that we might not count our lives as our own, but as bondservants of the Lord Jesus. So hear us, we pray. We ask it for the sake of Christ. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to the book of Acts. Chapter 16. And actually, I was going to begin reading with verse 1, but I'm fine with verse 6, Acts 16 and verse 6, if that's not too much trouble to get up. Okay. 16 and verse 6. Great. What we want to understand that at this point, Paul and Barnabas have gone their separate ways And Barnabas takes Mark with him, but Paul chooses Silas. That's the end of chapter 15. Chapter 16, we come. Timothy is introduced to us. And you see something both of his character. It says, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And then you see something of Paul's character in that Paul takes the instructions, the verdict, if you will, from the Jerusalem council, and as a good ambassador, takes the substance of that, and he shares that with the churches as he goes, but also with this new disciple, Timothy, whose mom 
was Jewish and his father was a Greek, so as not to give offense, he circumcises his young companion, all right? And what you find is, here they go, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and as we come upon the weaver portions of the book of Acts, Luke is writing this. Luke is including himself among them. So it's quite a group here. And we come to verse 6 then of chapter 16. It's clearly fruitful. It says, uh, you might notice it says in the preceding verse, verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. All right. Now verse 6, Acts 16. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had gone up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. There Luke includes himself in that group. He says this, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now in the interest of time, what I want to point out is the conversion there you'll see of Lydia, the seller of purple fabric, gathered with another group to pray by the river, that's verses 11 through 15, verses 16 through 23, you have the slave girl is rescued in effect by Paul and the apostles and their their group by this word where Paul's greatly annoyed, verse 18, he's greatly annoyed after being harassed, all right? Um, as the spirits inside the slave girl are crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So though that was true, Paul was finding it annoying. And so he says, I command you, verse 18, in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And then verses 19 through 24 as a result, the men are, they are interrogated, they are stripped, they are beaten and then they are imprisoned. Now, you'll know then after Lydia, the seller of purple fabric, whole family, then the slave girl, then the third apparent con- convert in Philippi here. Philippi, north of the, the, uh, the Aegean Sea, many, many hundreds of miles north and northwest from Antioch, um, right there on the Aegean Sea, Uh, Here you have now this third convert, and you can read Paul and Silas. They're there. Uh, They're praying. They're singing, and there's a great earthquake. You know the story. The jailer, his well-being is tied up in how well he's taking care of these prisoners. He thinks they're all escaping. They don't, and Uh, At the point of the earthquake, even though the doors are opened, all right, everyone's bonds are unfastened. He grabs his sword. He's ready to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners had escaped. But Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And then probably the shortest sermon ever in response to the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's a one-sentence sermon. That it's distilled in, believe in the Lord Jesus, verse 31, and you will be saved, you and your household. All right, it says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And one is said of this section, as we see the very birthing of the church in Philippi, from Lydia, the slave girl, and then the chief Philippian jailer, someone said, we think in terms of apostolic journeys, but sometimes God dares to put his greatest servants in chains. And right here in a course of 20 verses or less, the church in Philippi is birthed. Now turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. 
actually preached on this a number of months ago when Rich and Beth Sevilla were leaving. And I only want to show this to you. And I think in the interest of time, I'm going to just read the first five verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, and now he's going to express his thanks, and it is the substance of this thanksgiving that is the substance, the core of his prayer for them. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Now hear this, verse 5. Because, all right, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Well, tonight is the second part of a two-part message on missions. And last week, we took a look at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and the opening lines of that first missionary journey in Acts 13 that began there, Acts 13, the first three verses in Antioch, where the church in response to a word from the Spirit as they are gathering, worshiping, fasting, and praying, the church then lays hands on, on Paul, or at this time Saul, and Barnabas, and sends them on their way. It's not as we understood. It's not that there was no missionary activity by this time, but this is the first of what we'd call the formal missionary journeys. And I want to review for some of you, if you weren't here last Sunday morning, I want you to note as we looked briefly at the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and then Acts 13, 1 through 3, that what was noteworthy about this, the Great Commission given by our Lord Jesus is that first there was this cosmic reality that the one who gives the Great Grace Commission, the Great Commission, is an enthroned and exalted Christ. He says, all authority in Matthew 28, 16, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then there is not only this cosmic reality of the one to whom all authority has been given, the Lord Jesus, but there's this worthy mission. And the Lord Jesus, to his disciples there on the mount, he provides three goals for evangelism that are intrinsic to the commission. And it is this. It's to bring every person first into really a very vital, very a trustful subjection relationship by faith to the Son of God. He says, "Going to go therefore, make disciples of all the nations. All right? Secondly, the second goal for evangelism in the Great Commission is to bring men and women and every creature on the planet into vital union with the church of God. He says, not only are we to make disciples of all the nations, but Jesus said to the 12, they were to be baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit to bring them into vital union connection to the church. The church then is to be a community, a community of those in communion with God. Then thirdly, it's to bring every person into practical conformity to the Word of God. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Then there's this sure word of promise. The whole of the command is annexed with this word of promise about an ever-present and ever-living Christ. He says, in a way that sounds very much like the word to Joshua in Joshua 1.9, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then from the first few lines in the narrative concerning Barnabas, we gave a number of points, and I'm not going to review them, uh, last Sunday morning around uh, the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, partnership in the gospel, 
you can see those. It, you can, if you haven't, I'd encourage you to go back even and listen to last Sunday morning's message. But we thought deeply with how the church is called to serve the world via witness. This is part of what we call in a, the Essentials series. What is the church called to do? We are called to serve God directly in worship, to serve one another in nurture, living out the one another's of the New Testament, and we're to serve the church in mission. We're not to sit on our rear ends in this smug satisfaction in life is good, it's all good here, and so we can just be satisfied with our own comfort, all right? So tonight, though, my objective is to show from Acts, especially chapter 16, and this little bit in Philippians 1, how the church does missions. And I want to tell you that I'm largely, I've, I've read some and appreciated Dr. Sam Master's book that's called Doing Missions, How a Church of Any Size Can Reach the Nations. And we've got to remind ourselves that the work of missions is not exclusively the work of megachurches. In fact, it's the work of every church, no matter if there are five members, 500 members, or 5,000 members. And so, children of GBC, let me speak to you just for a minute. I want to have your attention. Do you remember from last week, if you were here, that there's a word around the number three that we do not find in our Bibles. Does anyone remember what that is, that concept? Does anyone? Trinity. Thank you, Logan. We don't find the word Trinity in our Bibles, but we find the truth about the Trinity. Listen to Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13. He says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And of course, we know that the disciples were to be baptized into this one name of the one God who exists in three persons. The three persons who are of one power, we read in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2 on the Trinity, of one power, one substance, and eternity. And so it is with missions. You cannot find the word missions or mission, to my knowledge, in the Bible. But we clearly find the priority and activity of missions, especially in the early church, as Luke records for us in the book of Acts, or what we call the Acts of the Apostles. God is that first missionary. And we may say that Jesus is the perfect or prototypical missionary. For he was the one who said this to Zacchaeus. Maybe some of you know it. The Son of Man came what? To seek and to save the lost. But so we don't fail in a most basic point. I want to ask this question. What is mission? What is missions? Okay. Sam Masters says it. He defines it this way. He says, missions is fulfilling the great commission, that is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, by crossing cultural and geographical barriers to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and disciple believers with the goal of planting churches. And so don't miss the two barriers, cultural and geographic, and I think to which we may add language. And then the words within the sentence. It's fulfilling, crossing, preaching, discipling, and planting. So in a way, whether we are reaching the Rendili tribe to the north part of Kenya, and to those maybe some among them who've never heard the gospel for the first time, or we're walking to the chimney's apartments, and we're finding and talking to someone whose life is quite different than ours, but if you ask them what is your only hope in life and in death, would have no clue how to answer it because they have no hope for life and they fear death. 
You might say there's an element of missions there. We're not going to quibble on what's outreach and what's missions, but it is bringing the gospel and typically use this C, right? C, G, L, crossing cultural, geographical, and language barriers and boundaries to preach the gospel for the purpose of making disciples with the goal of seeing established churches there, all right? That's our goal. So now to my subject. The subject is missions. What are we saying about how the church does missions? And here it is. This is the answer to the question on the test for tonight. The church does missions as a partnership to the gospel. And if you've never thought about this, this is why Paul is pressing in on Euodia in Syntyche in Philippians 4. Because a church that's divided cannot be a church then united in its great cause, in its missions to declare the glory of God among the nations. If we're dissing each other and fighting each other and not expressing this love, this affection for one another out of the very, the very affection of Christ, we will never side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel, give a rip about bringing the gospel to the nations. Does that make sense? And when you get that, you understand why Paul would gently, sweetly, but undeniably say, Euodia, Syntyche, whom he regarded every bit as much with Clement as his fellow workers in the Lord, to say to them, guys, come together for the sake of the great cause and for the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The church, brothers and sisters, does missions as a partnership in the gospel. That's the answer to the question, how we do it. Not alone, not a disconnected consortium of independent individuals who have their own agenda, but as a united, spirit-filled, Christ-centered, under the lordship of King Jesus community to preach the timeless gospel of Christ and him crucified that Paul said was his only goal in 1 Corinthians 2, to disciple believers until they are mature in Christ. It's a terminal statement. Paul has these, Romans 14, 9. To this end, Christ died and was raised again that he might be Lord, both of the living and the dead. Colossians 1, 28. There it is. It's so singular. It's so focused. Him we proclaim, teaching everyone, warning everyone with all wisdom that we might present every person, every creature under the planet, Mark 16, 15, that they might be mature in Christ. That's the goal. So that the one, the Lord of the church, the one who promised to build it. I thought about this. You ever know we're never called to build a church? There are things we're called to do. But Jesus says, I got that. I will build it. And I'll build it in such a way that the gates of hell will never, ever be able to stand against its in-breaking. And the goal of all this the goal of us not acting alone, the goal of us being united in this common faith, not this disconnected consortium of individuals, independent individuals, is that the Lord Jesus will have these countless outposts of his blood-bought sheep gathering for worship, for nurture, to declare his name, to spread his fame, and to serve the world by moving on and reaching outward to where Christ is yet not known or preached. God, help us not to be terminally constipated as a church where everything is inward and 95% of our energy is about what's going on at 5020 Old Spartanburg Road. God, help us. And this was Paul's method because he wrote to the church in Rome to say he would not venture to speak of anything except what Christ 
he said, has accomplished in me. And here was his conclusion in Romans 15, 20. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 52, 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And when you hear those words of Jesus, going therefore, make disciples of all the nations, ethne, that is principally a people group term. It's less about geographical boundaries and more about people groups. And so, brothers and sisters, as Paul was writing to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, Philippians 1, 1, he was writing to his brothers and sisters who were the fruit of his labors at Philippi, there in Macedonia, just a stone's throw from the blue-green Aegean Sea. And as this letter was Unrolled. I want you to imagine this. They enrolled this papyri. And, and I could just imagine their hand, they were being careful so not as, so, so they didn't smudge the writing. But to see, there it is. Paulos kai Timothy, doulos to Jesu Christu. They're, they're reading this. I want you to imagine this scene for a moment. There's Lydia. And based on her response in Acts 16 when she became converted, I'm pretty sure she was in the first three rows. I, I don't think she was in the back. Okay. There she was with her whole family. Okay. And remember that slave girl whose spirit so annoyed the apostle Paul, even though the spirit was confessing the truth? Imagine her excitement, even this trace of a smile as she remembered Paul and Timothy. Remember, it's Paul and Timothy. And she, she remembered them. She remembered Paul and his courage when he confronted that spirit who possessed this poor girl. Maybe those words still, she could just recall them word for word. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her and what about the Philippian jailer who went from despondency to rejoicing? No doubt he and his family were there hanging on every word as this letter was read. Why could Paul pray with this thankful, remembering, and overflowing joy on their behalf? Look at Philippians 1.5 again. Because because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And the word here translated partnership is the word koinonia. It's the idea where the idea of a coin, koinos, something that's hold in common, that's common currency. It's a word normally translated fellowship, like in 1 Corinthians 1.9, where Paul says this, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. There's our word. Where John says in 1 John, if we confess our sin, we have fellowship with God. Paul David Tripp says that sanctification, yours and mine, is a community project. But likewise, missions is a community project. It's a project of the church, of the, per of the church gathered and mobilized. And it requires all of us. Kids, you have a role. Did you know that you could pray? Did you know that you can give? Did you know that you can learn? Do you know that when you take something like the Voice of the Martyrs or a biography about a missionary, that's helping stoke in you a fire and a hunger 
to be part of telling this great story of the gospel to the nations. You can even write a note. And if some of you want to write a note, I think we did some of this, but if you want to write a note to Craig and Ada Cook, we'll take it with us when we leave next Monday and we'll give it to them just as surely as this letter from Paul was brought to the church at Philippi. We all have a role. The entire church, the whole Christian community, each individual member present and participating for the church is required for the church to fulfill its calling as a missional body under the service of its Lord and Master. And this is what the old gray apostle meant by this expression, because of your partnership in the gospel. He's saying you were there. We stood together. You were there from the first day. It's very interesting if you think about the words. Because of your partnership, your fellowship, your arm-in-arm presence and participation from that very first day until the point that he penned this letter. The church had received Paul's teaching. They had received Timothy's teaching and encouragement and their ministry. The, the church Paul knew would receive both Timothy and Epaphroditus. You can see there in chapter 2 of Philippians. He was like, I'm hoping to send Timothy to you soon. And look what he says of him. He's like, he's unique. There's no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare because everyone tends to seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But he says, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. And so there's not only the church at Philippi's participation with Paul, that participation in the gospel. But at a micro level, we see here Paul, first with Barnabas, now with Silas, joined by Timothy. No doubt Luke is embedded in this because he's providing the narrative. But there's this participation. They'd received his teaching. They were going to receive both Timothy and Epaphroditus. And the church has sent Paul support for his work on more, than one, on more than one occasion. There was no online giving. There was no Venmo. There was no Zelle. Go look on your map. Go look at the back of your Bible and look at the distance from Philippi. Just look everywhere across the world of the first century in the expansion of the church. These were miles upon miles where the money and the support was sent. But Paul says this in Philippians 4.16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So how does this partnership take place in the gospel? And I want to, to bring this home with just three key points as we think about this, is to understand the sovereign work of the Spirit and His involvement in the church. We had seen this earlier. If you have your book, if your Bible open to the book of Acts, look with me. In Acts 13, it was the Spirit who said in Acts 13 and verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And confirming that, you can see this there, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Very interesting because on one level, on one horizon, it's the church at Antioch that is sending, sending Paul and Barnabas out. But on another level, Luke attributes this, the sender sending role to the Holy Spirit. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, right? The church sent them off, the end of verse 3, but then verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. And so now come to Acts 16. And in effect, 
as we think of this sovereign work of the Spirit, see how this works geographically. Not here in effect, verse 6, that the apostles were forbidden by the Spirit to speak the word in Asia, right? So they went through that region, right? And it said they came to Mysia. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So from there they went to Troas. And it's there at Troas that Paul has this vision. And so not here, but there. And here's the invitation, what we call the Macedonian call. Come over to Macedonia and help us. And so Luke says that the help envisioned in this call was for this one thing. You read this there in verse 10. Luke writes, he says, when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia. And it supports the third point I'm going to give in a moment, and that's cooperation. This isn't just Paul, but Paul has the vision. He sees the vision but in collaboration, they sought to collectively then to go into Macedonia because it was their collective conclusion that God had called them to preach the gospel there to the Macedonians, right? So then that brings a second point as we think about how we do missions is to regard the role of the Spirit just like this, when the Lord opens opportunities up for us over here, just like this year, we've added several. We've added uh, a work in the country of Guatemala, okay? We've added something in the Central African Republic in our budget. It was through, through God's hand. Uh, we didn't just go out and look for it. These things came to us. Even as a church missionally, we have an opportunity to support two brothers, Satish and Eric and his family here for theological training. And believing that God has done that, and then in the same way, he's given us the gifts that he has within this church, a whole wide assortment of different gifts that together it's like one plus one, not simply two, but three. Because the sum of the parts, with the Spirit's help, as we work together, is greater. Uh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. There's a second thing I want us to see, and that's the priority of gospel preaching. Look, don't miss this. Here it is. Paul says, or Luke writes, that when Paul had seen the vision, two things resulted. Number one, immediately, that is without delay, they sought to go to Macedonia and they concluded this. Here it is. What was the work? The work, the help that was needed, come over to Macedonia and help. The help that came through the man that was being requested in this, this miraculous vision, all right, that Paul has in the night, the, the help that was needed is the preaching of the gospel. And that makes sense because you hear Paul say in Romans 1, not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation. You see there, and you go, no matter where you go, if you survey Paul's letters, look at back to Philippians 1 just for a moment. He speaks of their partnership in the gospel, verse 5. He speaks of his joy that what's happened to him has served to advance the gospel, verse 12. Verse 15, he speaks of preaching Christ, that even if some do that, knowing that he was placed where he was there, in the prison for the defense of the gospel. He doesn't care, only that, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so key, you might say, the core commitment 
to our missions, it's to preach Christ and him, and him crucified. That's Paul's emphasis there in the first few chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, he says, that's why I'm glad I hardly baptize any of you. Because here it is, that's my whole life. That's why he says in Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, teaching everyone, warning everyone with all wisdom that they might, he might present everyone mature in Christ. And so not surprisingly, look for a moment, go back to Acts 16. When they get to Philippi, they're there some days, what do they do on a Sabbath day? They go where the fish are. They find a place for prayer, a place of prayer where people are gathered for prayer by the river. And it may have been that more than Lydia was converted, but at least Lydia was. And the apostles speak and teach. There's not even a description of them preaching. It simply says, they went there. It says, we sat down. I really love that. They, we'd use in the common vernacular, they hung out. They hung out. It's like going to a coffee shop. They just went down by the river. It says they spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia. Now look at this. Luke says in verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. We do not know the content of this message, except we must conclude that it was in line with the gospel. There's Paul with his companions doing what they believed this help was required, preaching the gospel. Here, it wasn't the same as every setting in the book of Acts. And what does God do? Quietly, he opens her heart, which we have to believe previously was closed to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And that is one way of saying the Lord saved her by opening her heart, all right? Now, good, I want to apply this for a minute. Kids, kids, kids of Grace Baptist Church, if you want the Lord to open your heart to his word, then one thing you want to do is pay attention to his word. Okay? Yeah. So when you come and you hear the word preached and the Bible opened, say the, you may pray, you can say, Lord, help me understand. Help me believe your word. Help me see my need of Christ. Do for me what you did for the lady by the river in Philippi and open my heart. And he can and he can. And then you know, as we think about this idea of the gospel, they speak. They speak by the river with these, these prayer gathers. And then we have this one sentence from Paul, an annoyed preacher, who says to the slave girl, I command you to the spirit, or spirits in the slave girl, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. That's it. That's it. Okay? And then they're interrogated, they're dragged, they're beaten, they're stripped, they're jailed. No problem. There they are at PCI, the Philippi Correctional Institute. They hold an impromptu prayer meeting, and not just prayer, they had some singing with it. You see that there. And late at night, they're praying and singing hymns to God. And they had an audience. Luke says the prisoners were listening to them. And you know what happened. You know about the great earthquake. And the whole place is shaking. And the doors open up and everyone's shackles, even those, the stocks on Paul and Silas's feet are opened up. And you can just imagine the jailer just gets right to it. He calls for lights. He rushes in. And I've got to believe he had heard Paul and Silas praying and singing. 
the dew of the Spirit and the Word had already fallen, in a sense, softening his heart. And so he just has this one question for these two prisoners. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And so whether it's Paul by the river with a company of prayers, whether it's a single word of command to the spirits possessing the slave girl, or it's a simple answer to a distressed jailer about how he would have, be right with God in eternal security, what's central to this is the gospel. And we don't have a lot of content here, but it's there. There's a third thing that will be done as we think about how we do this in partnership. And that is, we make a commitment to cooperative effort. And it's a bit of a repeat, but I want you to hear this. Brothers and sisters, everyone here has a role in bringing the gospel to the nations. From the youngest person to the oldest, to the person that thinks, I have nothing to give, to the person who in a sober moment realizes they're stewarding a lot that they can contribute to bring the gospel to the nations. Everyone has a role, each person a part. Kids, did you know that the only person that Jesus ever gave a compliment to forgiving was a woman who dropped two clankety-clank copper coins there into the treasury of the temple. Even you have something to give. Even you do. John Piper says this. You have three choices in world missions. Be a joyful, sacrificial goer. Be a joyful, sacrificial giver. Or be disobedient. How are you contributing to the great cause? That's my question tonight. In the course of a month, your prayers, your giving, not simply your surplus, but where it hurts, like sacrificially, where it means as you give for the great cause of the gospel going to the nations. To give means you're actually giving something up. Your giving's an investment, but you're giving. Maybe some of your teaching was shine. Let me correct something I'd said last Sunday morning. Maybe you could go as a parent and watch shine. If you're in the shine room, I was reminded that you need to have a background check. But if you don't have a background check, we can tell you about shine. What does that mean? Do any of the kids know what shine means? What is it? Oh, I heard it from the back. Seeing him in nations everywhere. Moms and dads, you know a practical way you can prepare your children to go to the nations? Teach them geography. Help them understand. Let's like just start. There's uh, North America, <laughs> South America, Central America in between, Europe, you know, let's do Asia, let's look at Africa, and then begin to think about the nations. Let's understand the 1040 window. Let's understand the differences in people groups and think about cultural and geographical and language differences. We can do that. Three choices. How are you doing? Are you a joyful, sacrificial goer? Are you preparing for that? Are you a joyful, sacrificial giver? Did you know, listen, if, you were, if you're an adult and you want to be prepared to be sent cross-culturally, that's probably a four to six or seven year time of preparation. When you take training it's not like, well, I think we're just going to go to Arby's and we walk out the door and we cross the street and we order. This is a long time. 
This is where we are as a church. Where we sit unmoved. And see men and women and children perish. When you look at the images of what's happening in the Gaza Strip right now. Is that just a news feed? Or do you realize that that's men and women and children who are entering eternity, and some of them without Christ, many without Christ? As Charles Spurgeon, he said this, look. He said, basically, and I paraphrase, if they must go to hell, let them at least go to hell with their arms wrapped around their legs into the teeth of our exertions. Do you delight to see, do you long to see men and women bowed down before the Lamb and worshiping Him who is worthy? then we can't be indifferent about this call to go to the nations. It's ours. John Owen said the reason that spiritual gifts are given to the church and to every single Christian is that together we might be involved in this great thing of building up the church, a bride that Jesus has purchased with his own blood. God, help us. God, help us not to be indifferent. God, help us to weep like the Lord Jesus over Jerusalem, to treasure him and to love our fellow image bearers so much that there be no price too great than to be part of the great enterprise to bring the gospel to the nations. May he help us to do this. Let us be a church that knows how and is learning how to do missions for his great name.